This morning we're really um, in, in the final message in a short series on faith for the new year, and uh, we just have a little parenthesis here before we uh, go back to our uh, study of the book of Matthew, uh, and we'll begin that next week. But the reason for this, the reason that we wanted to do a little... Um, series here to start the year off is that we have been reading not uh, just the eternities, we have been reading the times. And the times tell us that 2023 is going to be an unusual year. In fact, last week on January 10th, the World Bank slashed its projection of global economic growth almost in half, from 3% to one7 uh, and just for a reference point, that's not good news. That's not in the right direction. CNN Business reports this. Whether the world falls into recession or not, the next 12 months are likely to be difficult. Thank you very much. Their head of investment uh, strategy the investment strategy for city banks said it remains a challenging backdrop. That's how bankers talk, I think. His team predicted the world will experience the slowest economic growth in the last 40 years, aside from 2020 and the 2007-8 financial crisis. And then it goes on to say, even if global recession is averted, Many countries will still endure downturns accompanied by painful rises in unemployment, though economists don't agree how severe or how long they will last. See, this is why we focus on the good news, church, usually. Because the article continues, the worst is yet to come. And for many people, 2023 will feel like a recession. It will be broad-based and it will reopen the economic wounds that were only partially healed post-pandemic. And so in a world like this, does the good news of Jesus make any difference? Is there anything that the Bible has to say that would help us when the news is almost uh, uniformly bleak? about the world financial situation. And I would encourage you that, yes, there is. There is plenty in the Bible. In fact, that we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9 this morning. So I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and open them to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. It's about halfway through the New Testament. And that will get you started um, with some good news about your life in 2023. So it starts like this in uh, verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 9. It says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, 
not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So here in just this short text, it is really clear that God's generosity gives us confidence even in the most challenging situations. That a Christian must trust the generosity of God as they head into a recession. The generous churches must believe in a generous God in order to function in a generous way. Or to put it differently, no one can be generous without trusting in the generosity of God. No one can be free from fear without trusting God to be generous. So in this text, I want to show you five reasons that you can trust in the generosity of God. There are five things about the way that God relates to us that should cause you to trust His generosity. Now before I go there, though, I I want to make sure that you understand the situation that we're talking about here in the New Testament. What has happened, are you ready for this? There's a recession. Okay? The biblical word for recession is famine. Okay, that might actually be worse than a recession. But that's a biblical word. And it's, in, it's focused in Jerusalem. And this church in Corinth is in Greece. And there's another in Macedonia. And they're partnering in order to send an offering down to help out in this famine-stricken Jerusalem. So that's the situation In 2 Corinthians 8, so if you go back just the preceding chapter, he gives a little more background about how other churches are jumping in on this. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So I just want to stop there, and I want you to notice, again, the situation. The situation is that it's bad in Jerusalem, but in Macedonia, there is a severe test of affliction and extreme poverty, and those are the guys who are taking up an offering, as well as the church in Corinth. Then it says, for they gave... According to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, 
They wanted to. They begged, verse 4, they begged us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then, by the will of God, to us. So there, two things happened. There was a heart move first before there was a financial move. They gave themselves to the Lord first, then they gave themselves to this giving project. They begged for the opportunity to participate in the relief of the saints. And so that's how another church responded to it. Here is the same uh, situation described in the book of Romans. Uh, Chapter 15, verse 25 says, At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For in Macedonia... And in Achaia, they have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do so. And indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they are also to be of service to them in material blessings. And so the first thing that we see is that there is this vision among the churches that they are going to take care of one another and that They are happy to do it, pleased to do it, and they beg for the chance to get in on the action of giving money and sending it to Jerusalem. That's the first thing. The second thing that I want you to notice about that is that there were very clear overtones of racial reconciliation in that offering. Because the Jews who were impoverished in Jerusalem had for centuries put off the Gentiles and said, no, you are not us. We are God's people. You are not. We're in. You're out for centuries. But the good news of Jesus changed that. The fact that Jesus came to make of uh, two people one, Jews and Gentiles, this racial divide was dissolved at the cross And then the practical expression of that reconciliation was this particular offering. So it's beautiful in several different ways. But that's the situation. Macedonia and Achaia or Corinth, they're sending money to Jerusalem and they're begging for the opportunity to be involved. Which seems weird to me. Maybe weird to you. But... If you believe what is here in 2 Corinthians 9, it doesn't seem that weird because what's here is amazing. So let's look at it um, little by little. In 2 Corinthians 9, there are five reasons why um, you should trust in the generosity of God and be generous yourself. The first is in verse 6, and it's the lesson from the farm. If you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. If you sow generously, you reap generously. Everybody knows you reap the same thing you sow. And of course, in an agricultural uh, environment, this plays pretty well. Because every farmer knows that how you sow relates to how you reap. And... That's one of the advantages you have of growing up on a farm if you grew up on a farm. If you didn't grow up on a farm, okay, here's the best best I can do. I want you to imagine you got to redo your yard. 
Okay, so you, you somehow rototill it all up, you clean it all up, and all there is is dirt. But you know that next summer you want to have some people over for a barbecue, so you have to get a lawn there somehow. Okay, so what are you going to do? Are you going to go out with a handful of seed and carefully try and get it all around the yard, maybe space an inch or two inches apart, and hope that somehow you get a nice yard out of that? Nobody's, nobody would think of doing that. You're going, to get, you're going to take the seed and you're going to throw it or you're going to have some kind of a spreader and you're going to get the seed all over the dirt because you know, or at least you have a sense that if you sow um, sparingly, you will have a sparse yard. If you sow generously, you will have uh, a bountiful yard. You, you just have the sense that however it is you sow relates to however it is that you reap. You know this. And this is only the first of several agricultural references that he has here. The interesting thing is that every farmer knows that sowing is an act of faith. Sowing is an act of faith. You put a seed in the ground and you don't know what will come of it. I planted plenty of seeds in the ground in my garden only to be disappointed. Nothing comes up. I put plenty of seeds in my garden also and been delighted come August and September with what our family gets to eat. But sowing is an act of faith. And so when he's talking about sowing generously or sowing sparingly, he's talking about really having faith for the harvest. The word um, translated here, bountiful, is really kind of interesting. It's, it um, talks about sowing with blessing. The, the literal word is blessing. And so, sowing on the basis of blessing, you will reap on the basis of blessing. This is the intention of God and the way that he wants to communicate to us about what it means to be generous. So the first reason that you should trust God's generosity is a lesson from the farm that you, if you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. You sow generously, you'll reap generously. The sowing is related to the reaping. The second reason is in verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The first thing I want you to notice here is the language of goals. He's talking here about your financial goals, about your life goals. And he puts it in terms of you making a decision in your heart what you're going to do. And so, you can imagine, they had a meeting, okay, maybe between Christmas and New Year's. What do we want 2023 to be like? Let's talk about that. Let's, have a, let's, let's make some decisions about the way that we want to show up in the world in 2023. And I don't know, maybe they set a direction or set a goal. That's what he's talking about. What kind of thing do you want to see happen? How do you want to show up in the world in this next year, the, the language of goals, as every person has decided in his or her heart. That's the way you're to give. In other words, it's not just like, 
an emotional thing where I just feel like I, I have to give. I see pictures that make my heart bleed, so I just have to give. It's not that. It's like make a plan. That's the way he's talking. So as you've decided in your heart, that's what you give. I can imagine how this would work, right? They're up in um, Greece here, and the poverty is down in Jerusalem, and they have pictures, right, of little orphan children in Jerusalem. And people are just feeling so bad, and that's why that's not at all what he's saying. He's saying that's not the reason you give. You give because you Make a decision about how you are going to show up in the world. Decide in your heart, he says. Not grudgingly or under compulsion. So this is not anything about being under pressure. So if, if you tell you what, you don't get this very often. I'm just going to say, you don't get this very often. But if you don't like what I'm telling you today, this is your out clause. Okay? You don't have to do this. Don't do it out of um, pressure or begrudgingly. Do it because you've decided in your heart. So there is an out clause here if you don't like this. But I'm going to tell you, this is one of the most remarkable texts in the whole Bible. And I suspect, if you're like me, that you will say, like they did in Macedonia or like they did in Achaia, how can I get in on this? That's the kind of text this is. This is an opportunity. That's how I want you to hear this. This is an opportunity for you to trust God when times are hard. And when you trust God when times are hard, you can trust Him in a way that you can uh, when times are hard that you can't when times are easy or when you are like Scrooge McDuck swimming in cash. This is a time for you to make decisions about what kind of person you want to be in the world and then act on it. And then he gives us his punchline, right? For God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. God wants you to be happy when you are generous. That's his goal. His goal is not really the transaction. His, his goal is your heart being happy being a generous person. He loves a cheerful giver. The, the Greek word, if you did not translate it so that it was cheerful, but you just took the letters into English, it would be the word that we know as hilarious. God loves a hilarious giver. And so this is an opportunity for you to be a hilarious giver because the work is not really financial work. The work is getting my heart such that I'm happy with less. Getting my heart such that I'm happy when I give things away. It's the work God does in my heart that makes me happy. To be in a place of trusting God, not of trusting money, that's what we're talking about when we say God loves a cheerful giver. He wants us to be happy doing it. Which is interesting. There's another reason I think you need to, to trust in the generosity of God because He is interested in your happiness. And that's what this is about. So 
Then go to verse 8, and then we'll see the third reason that you should trust in the generosity of God. You should trust Him because um, He loves a cheerful giver. You should trust Him because if you sow generously, you'll reap generously. But you should also trust Him because He is able to make all grace abound to you. Look at what it says verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So look at that. Just look at what's there. God is able to make all grace abound to you, having all sufficiency in all things at all times. So four different times he talks about all things, all times, every situation. And then there are two different times in which he talks about abounding. Grace abounds to you so that you may abound in every good work. This is not stingy. This is not about a suggestion or an accident that might happen. This is something that God says happens all the time. Let that sink into you. Let all those alls sink into you. That all of the time God does this. So this isn't something that's merely a possibility. Or something that might, if you're lucky, allow you to squeak by. This is something God does all the time in every situation so that you might abound. And that alone is just dazzling to me. I mean, if I was God, okay, which sometimes I like to think I am, you know, if I was God, I would hedge my bets a little bit. Wouldn't you? I'd say, well, you know, some days we're going to make it work out pretty good for you. But just in case, I'm going to say some days we won't. There's nothing like that here. Always, in every way, all the time, God will make all grace abound to you. Period. Get used to the generosity of God. He follows up all of those alls and everys and aboundings with a quotation. He says, as it is written, verse 9, as it is written, he is distributed freely, he's given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. And I'm just going to say, that doesn't exactly do it for me. I mean, I was so overwhelmed with all of the abounds and all of the alls and everys and alwayses that I'm just, it gives me something like, yeah, you know, he generally gives and it generally works out. Like, what? What he's doing is he's quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from the Old Testament from Psalm 112, verse 9. And he's doing that to convince us that this is not new. This is not something God's thinking of. So, huh, let's, let's do an unusual thing here for these folks in Jerusalem. He's saying, let's do what God has always done for His people. That's what He's doing. 
Let's relate to it. God's saying, I want to relate to my people in the way I've always related to my people. And so he says, this is what's written in your scriptures, Psalm 112. So Psalm 112 verse 9 is good, but I think what he's doing with Psalm 109 is he's kind of pulling us back to the Old Testament so we get all of Psalm 112. So let me read you from Psalm 112. Verse 1. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commands. So the first thing that I want you to notice about this very first verse is that it is about an orientation in life. It is not about a financial transaction with God. Blessed is the person who fears the Lord. But, it, but then you begin to recognize the language who greatly delights in his command. There is a happiness there. There is a cheerfulness there that God is very interested in. So, blessed is a man who orients his life around the Lord and delights in his commands. Then he continues. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. Again, I want to make sure that you see, because I think this is what he's importing here, is that we are not talking about some way to manipulate God or some way to have a financial transaction that God approves of. This is really an orientation of life that says, I'm trusting in God. I'm fearing God. And when I do, God will take care of me. And light will dawn on the darkness for the upright. He is gracious and merciful and righteous. There's a quality of his life that goes far beyond the financial implications. Then, verse 5, it is well with the man who deals generously and lends who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news, of recessions and famines. His heart is firm, trusting the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his enemies. See that? His heart is firm. His heart is not afraid. Why? Because he's oriented his life to fear the Lord and to trust in a generous God to take care of him. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. And so all of this plays out in such a way that the people who trust in a generous God are characterized to be different than those who don't. And then the, the verse 9, the one that he quotes here, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever, his horn is exalted in honor. And so he quotes verse 9, assuming that we might remember those first uh, eight verses. Because he wants us to realize that God's not doing something new. God is doing what God has always done. God is not changing. God is behaving in the way God has always behaved toward those who will trust Him. 
Well, then the fourth reason that you should uh, trust God to be generous is in verse 10. And it identifies God not necessarily as God, but as the one who supplies seed for the sower and bread for food. So he's characterized by the fact that he does give physical care. He provides seed to the sower and bread for food, and he will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So the fourth reason is that God will supply everything you need in order to reap righteousness. Now when I say reap righteousness, that means reap the fruit of a life that is right. And again, it has, it has to do with the orientation of your life more than a simple financial transaction. And it sounds like we're talking about seed and bread and sowing and, har- and harvesting seeds. But he does kind of a switcheroo, doesn't he? If you look at that, he says, God who supplies seed for the sower and bread for food will give you the seeds you need to reap a harvest of righteousness. In other words, God is interested in this life, this lifestyle that you lead that is distinct from those who do not trust a generous God. The kind of harvest is a harvest that involves more than just seeds. And so the person who trusts in God's generosity and then is generous himself lives the righteous life that God desires. Or let me say it another way. God will support the righteous life that he requires. In other words, you can give and not be concerned about God taking care of you. It's really that simple. Because your life follows your money. We say, I, mean, I remember it from Bugs Bunny cartoons, your money or your life, right? Your money or your life. And really, your money and your life are synced up. They really represent the same kinds of decisions. That's what he's saying here. Because as you make financial decisions, you're going to either go in a righteous direction or an unrighteous direction. And so he just wants to encourage us to trust God with what is ahead and trust God to supply all that we need to go in the right direction. And so you can trust that God will supply everything you need to live a righteous life. And then the the fifth reason that you can trust in a generous God, in fact, the fifth reason you must trust in God to be generous, is that He will enrich you in every way so that you can be generous in every way and He will produce thanksgiving. So God's interest in this, again, has nothing to do with money or resources. He is good to go. He's God. That's one of the things that we know about Him. He's going to be okay. He is interested in our lives reflecting His existence, reflecting His character. 
He is interested in us living in a way that says, I believe God is generous. And if we do that, He will take care of us. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous in every way. It is not merely, I just love the fact that He he just will not let it go. This is not about money. This is about your life, trusting God, and being characterized as someone who trusts a generous God by being generous. This is extraordinary, really. In every way in which you need to be enriched, you will be. This is better than a financial promise. Which I think is important because most of us don't have money as our biggest problem. The main reason most of us are not generous is not because of money. It's because our hearts are fearful or our hearts are trusting something else. Our hearts are hoping for something else rather than trusting in a generous God. And so I just want to take a moment and suggest to you how this works or maybe more clearly how this doesn't work. Because this doesn't work by going home, turning on the football game, putting your feet on the ottoman, folding your arms and saying, hmm, he hasn't really enriched me yet, so I guess I won't be generous yet. Okay, That's not what he's doing here. He's not, again, having some financial transaction where he's sitting back and inviting you to sit back and say, wait for God to give you something, then you can give it away. He is suggesting to us in the language of seeds and harvesting that, you know what, you can trust. God for this. You can trust in a generous God. And so you start believing Him. You start with faith. And then you find out that God is trustworthy, like He said He would be. Now, I just, I just want to stop and make sure you don't miss this. Because we're, we're starting this year with faith for a new year, basically, these last two or three weeks. And my goal in that, as your pastor, is that you will uh, experience the fact that God is alive and well in your life. That you will really have an honest-to-goodness spiritual uh, experience that God is real. And so we've... Inv- we've asked you to pray, and we've encouraged you to pray and pray and pray and really believe God will answer your prayers. And now, to live with respect to the recession or respect to your your finances in a way that is generous, trusting that God will be generous so that you will experience Him. And I say that because I've, I've only been doing this for several decades now. And I will say almost without exception, every time someone says to me, you know, I really saw God come through, or I really experienced God in this, in almost every situation, they have 
trusted God with their finances first. They have done this, and then they have experienced God. And that's really what I want. I mean, it really is about the kind of experience that you have with the Lord. You start with faith, and then you believe that God will come through, and He does. And so what is His interest in this? Right? He's not interested in uh, your money. He's not interested in financial transactions. His interest is very clear. Look at the very end of this. The end of it is thanksgiving to God. That is His goal. You might say the reason that God encourages you to believe that He's generous is so that he will receive thanksgiving or he will receive glory. This is really all about your good and his glory. Uh, just, like, just like most all of the Christian life is. God is interested in your good and his glory. Now, who gives him thanks? How does this overflow to thanks, for thanksgiving? Okay, I want you to, to think about that for a second. Who gives, it, gives thanks to God for the generosity? Certainly, the people who receive the generous gift are thankful, right? The people in Jerusalem, in this case, they receive a generous gift, whew, trouble averted, thank you. But if this is true, if God in every way, all the time, makes you abound, the person who gives has reason to be thankful, don't they? Because God's doing something extraordinary in their life. And then I think there are bystanders on the side shaking their heads saying, why would somebody do that? This makes no sense. How can this be happening? And they, in turn, glorify the Lord and give thanks. And so there is this multiplication of thanksgiving. In fact, if you were to keep reading in verse 12, it says, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ. In other words, to believe the gospel of Christ, in verse 13, means that you believe God is generous. And if you believe the gospel, it will overflow in your own generosity and then will result in a cascade of thanksgiving to God. It goes on and finishes in verse 15 and says, Thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. This is the statement, isn't it, of the gospel. God is the giver. He has given His Son. Thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. Just to make sure that you are clear, this entire situation is just saturated with the good news that God loves you and has given you His Son. It is saturated with the fact that God is the generous one. And we are just responding in faith to God. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 states it really, really clearly. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, 
For your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That is the statement of the good news of Jesus. Is that he didn't hang on to what was his. He gave it away and became poor so that you might become rich. The glory of the gospel, or the good news, is that God is generous. And that he will change your life when you trust him. So some of you may have financial decisions to make as a result of believing God is generous, certainly. But I think most of us will have decisions that are heart decisions. Most of us have decisions where we decide in our heart not so much about money, but we decide we're not going to be afraid. We decide we're not going to love money. We're not going to hoard things. We're not going to really believe that a person's life is defined by their income strata, or anything else. We have many more fundamental sorts of decisions to make before we get to deciding in our hearts to give. But all of those decisions spring from trusting a God to be generous. And so all of those decisions will reflect our faith in a generous God. And so are you going to trust Christ who, though he was rich, became poor so that you might become rich? Are you going to trust a God who is able at all times in every way to enrich you for all things? Or are you going to clutch your resources with clenched fists, uncertain that God will act on behalf of those who trust him? This coming recession may be a gift to us. And it would be a great time for the church to trust God in a way that the average person can't. And so I hope that from 2 Corinthians you have been convinced that you can be confident God is able to take care of everything that concerns you. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, would you help us to be... um, full of faith. Forgive us for talking faith and acting fearful. Would you enable us to believe your character and your promises here and then act accordingly? And Father, I look forward to people experiencing you and your provision and your care and your closeness in a way in this next year that they haven't before. Would you help us, I pray, by your Spirit, in the name of Jesus, amen.